Hey everyone, this is That Guy in Hutch, Jason Probst, and you're listening to That Podcast in Hutch. So today I've brought into the studio David Reed, who's the curator with the Reno County Historical Society down at the Reno County Museum. And the reason I wanted to visit with David is because uh, just this week we pulled up the time capsule from 1972 to celebrate the 150th anniversary of Hutchinson, and we took out all the materials that people 50 years ago put into this time capsule, and the Reno County Museum is taking care of that and stabilizing it, and they're going to put that on display. Uh, but we also buried a new time capsule and put new material in it, and 50 years from now, uh, another group of people will pull that out of the ground and they'll have a similar celebration and they'll look at what we put in and how weird we were 50 years ago. Uh, so I thought it'd be good. Uh, and also we're having a big celebration on Thursday to mark the 150th anniversary of Hutchinson. So I thought I'd have David come in and talk a little bit about uh, what we found in the time capsule, uh, maybe a little bit about what we put in the new time capsule, and kind of why we do this. So David, thanks for coming in today. My pleasure. So... Let's so tell me a little bit first about what was happening in Hutchinson in 1872. Uh, 1872, the um, the railroad had just recently come through about six months prior. Uh, the first settlers were f starting to arrive in the county. Um, the Santa Fe, as it came to the uh, Arkansas River, um, it's basically where C.C. Hutchinson decided that that's where the railroad needed to stop. And that's where he decided to plat out um, the city that we have today. Um, anywhere in Hutchinson that you see wider streets um, than in other parts of town, um, for example, Main Street, and then all the way from uh, basically Avenue D all the way up to 5th and 6th. Those were from the original plat. He platted the streets wide enough that uh, he predicted heavy commerce and all that kind of stuff. Um, and... Uh, because of its strategic place on the river, I think uh, a, a lot of people saw opportunity here. And uh, it, it was uh, a trickle at first, and then by the end of the, the 1870s, it became a flood. Um, and by 1890, we were pretty well established as a pretty formidable city, rivaling Wichita at the time. What kind of drove that growth? Was it primarily the location of the railroad? or Yeah, so a lot of it was... Um, grain um, and uh, farmers, essentially. Um, and then later on, you'd see the, the, the rise of the salt industry, mm -hmm. especially at the end of the 1880s. Um, we had several cattle trails that they never crossed Reno County, but they came fairly close. And uh, for a long time, farmers that lived out on the, uh, the western edges of Reno County, they made more money selling produce to passing cowboys than they did actually raising crops. Oh, wow. So, yeah, we never really had a a major cattle industry, although we did have meat packing plants here, it was nothing compared to Dodge or Wichita. But um, the the south central location for the grain industry was um, pretty vital. And then with the addition of uh, transporting transporting salt uh, across the country became paramount, um, and it still is today. So uh, I think that's basically been the driving forces for for Hutchinson for a. For a very long time. Yeah, 150 right? years. Yeah. yeah. And, and those those early days. So there were people here in Hutch before 1872. I mean, what, it, there what, there were a few scattering people uh, uh, here and there. Um, most of them filtered in from the Bueller area and then kind of worked their way southwest across the county, um, basically following the Santa Fe train. Um, and then once uh, 
the county had been pretty well laid out and you started getting people filtering in from the direction of uh, Mount Hope um, toward, from basically due west from Wichita. Um, but uh, I would say the first five years, Hutchinson grew steadily, but it was not a boom town uh, to start off. So I, I couldn't give you the exact numbers, but uh, it, it was not near what you know Dodge City or Liberal would have been at the time. But then it's it, it, later. It's it, later. It, it took boom, off, right? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. And probably uh, it, it grew for quite a while, and then probably like a lot of prairie towns in the early 1900s started to kind of stabilize a little bit. A little bit. Um, but the the driving factors there was a, in the in the turn of the century there was just an amazing amount of um, people trying new ideas. Um, we had the salt industry created a lot of. Uh, auxiliary industries that sprung up around it. Um, you had the soda ash plant that came in and it lasted until just after World War One, and that really pushed a lot of industry um, because salt was a necessary component of soda ash. Mm-hmm. Um, and then during World War II, you had um, Cessna came out here and was building gliders for D-Day. And so there's always, and, and in between you have all of the, they had uh, car manufacturers here, they had soap manufacturers. Everyone was trying a different industry in Hutchinson, and it was because of our location on the river. It was our location on uh, the rail lines. I mean, we had three rail lines that ran through here, which was the same amount as Wichita had at the time. Um, And because it was so well laid out, um, and I think its accessibility to the rest of the state and the region, um, I think it made it very desirable. It's talking about train train travel and the, the three rail lines that came through. Um, I've seen some old advertisements, uh, and I can't remember exactly, but it, I think it would have been around this time, but where, where there was like 34 stops a day of like passenger trains yeah. that came through. It, just the, it was insane. Yeah. yeah. Hutchinson actually had, um, and we have a map of it in the museum where he had actually predicted eight rail lines would come through. And, uh, you know, through consolidation and competition, most of those went away, but uh he predicted a, a lot of a lot of things, but um, having eight rail lines would have just made Hutchinson a powerhouse in Kansas. Um, it never happened, but yeah, the the systematic way that they kept adding stops, it, it was just you know freight in, freight out. It was pretty amazing. And you had um, because of the salt industry, they're sending salt out, but to create the salt they're bringing coal in. Mm-hmm. And um, so when it came to winters in Hutchinson, people did not lack for for uh, heat. They always had a supply of coal in, in town, which was really nice too. That's, that's, that's interesting <laughs> yeah. that you get the coal in to take yeah. care of that. And, there yeah. was all, and that's you know, Emerson Carey. He started his, his salt empire um, through coal. Um, he was a coal dealer. And then um, having a surplus of coal, he started um, uh, manufacturing um, ice he had an ice plant and then you know all of the product that went through those two industries he expanded out into salt so it, he wasn't he wasn't unique in that respect there was a lot of people who had branched out into different aspects but he was the best at it so yeah. but it was very typical for for Hutchinson for all these people to be looking for all these little niches because there was a ton of them there's yeah. a lot of opportunity here it was kind of like a total growth phase during yeah. that time yeah right? I mean you you name an industry at one time Hutchinson probably had it yeah, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. So fast forward to 2022, we we 
we're celebrating 150 years of, of, of our city's existence and the 150th anniversary. And we, we had a ceremony just yesterday mm -hmm. where we pulled up a time capsule from 1972. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought it would be interesting to talk. I was I was there for it and got to see some of those things. And then you you were nice enough to let me into the museum today to take some better pictures of things. But uh, let's talk about some of the things that, that we found in that time capsule. Okay. Um, so a lot of the items that uh, came up were um, letters that uh, were written uh, by citizens who wanted to communicate to their descendants. Um, we had several businesses that were represented. Um, Nation Meyer, who was the president of First National Bank, he uh, submitted a packet that talked about his his um, plans for the future or his hopes for the future for First National, as well as the things that are going on um, at the time. Um, the school districts uh, or the school districts uh, submitted some paperwork and some directories. Um, the Centennial Committee, whose idea was to create the time capsule, uh, submitted um, a substantial amount of material, some of which we had never seen before in the museum, and we were very excited to add it to the collection. Um, for example, we, uh, they submitted a silver commemorative spoon, which we had never seen before. Um, they had a, a license plate that was a uh, centennial that we had seen, but we didn't have in the collection. Mm -hmm. um, they had two coins uh, minted for the centennial celebration, and we only had one of them in the, com uh, in the archives. Now we have both, which was fantastic. Um, we got a lot of periodicals, um, Montgomery Ward's catalog, um, the Hutchinson Directory, um, Time Magazine, Life Magazine, uh, a lot of newspapers. Uh, just give us that quick snapshot of what, what life was like in 1972. You talking about the bank, I think you had told me a story earlier that the construction on the bank, on First National Bank, had just begun. It hadn't started. It, it, it hadn't was, started It was still yet. two years away. Okay. Yeah. But Nation was, in his letter, he was he was excited to talk about it and hope that, you know, everything came out okay. And, <laughs> and, he, and he submitted in the time capsule a, a rendering, an mm -hmm. artist rendering of what the bank would look like. Yep. And you said that was pretty accurate. It was pretty accurate. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He was. He was it, the the artist stayed true to the blueprints. It was it, kind of interesting to see. Yeah. So you saw that saw the picture in there, and that was that was an that's an that's an interesting concept that mm -hmm. the, in the time capsule that that rested for fifty years underground was this image of what was going to happen right. with the plan, but it hadn't yet started. Right. Um, and then when you look at it, you say, yeah, that that turned out to be. Uh, I can compare that to what exists now, mm -hmm. and it's. It's on on mark. It's yeah. it's on and he on, on hoped, target. He hoped that First National would still be around fifty years later, and and here it is, and it's still here, live and kicking. Yeah, so yeah, it's great. Um, couple, uh, so the letters to descendants. You guys are going to try to track down the people that those letters were written to. Yeah. Um, I think you talked yesterday about you have a lot of vehicles to do that. Social media oh, yeah. is probably a good way. A to lot do that. more vehicles today than there would have been 50 years ago. Um, back, you know, I would I would guess in 1972 it would have been a lot of you know, crack out the the city directory, put stuff in the newspaper, and uh, word of mouth, and then just let it soak. But today, I mean, you got Google, Facebook, Twitter. Um, you know, it, everything moves up so much faster. And um, even if somebody's not in the same town, there's always somebody who knows somebody. And um, that's kind of one of the benefits of being in 2022 is we should be able to track everyone down fairly quickly. Plus, you know, we have easy access to census records. So mm -hmm. if somebody's not local anymore, um, 
we should be able to track them down fairly easily. And find out what mm-hmm. county they live in or what yeah. city they Ancestry. live in. Ancestry.com. I mean, the library is also a wealth of information. So it, it's it's a pretty easy job, <laughs> thankfully. Well, and I think, uh, you know, yesterday there was a family that I know that was there. And they, they were there because uh, somebody in their family, I can't remember if it was a, a mom. I think it was the mom. Uh, had written a letter mm-hmm. and put in a time capsule 50 years ago and then gave them the paper that mm-hmm. said, hey, I put this letter in the time capsule. Make sure you go back yeah. and get this. And I imagine the same sort of thing might happen another 50 years well, from now. Yeah. And what's funny is um, um, when the Hutch News came and did, uh, they, they took photographs, they published a couple of them in the newspaper of two of the letters. And we've already heard from one of the people that was it was addressed to. So in the span of 24 hours, he read the news, saw his name, gave us a call and said, hey, when can I come and take a look at what I wrote? So it moves that fast nowadays. Wow. And and it, I just can't imagine what it would be like to be, you know, one of those family members to, mm-hmm. and then find out that somebody had put that in the in mm-hmm. the time capsule and you get to go see uh, what somebody wrote, right. what they were thinking 50 years ago. Yeah, yeah. It, there was another thing that was in there. What well, well, I want to go back before I get to that. Montgomery Ward, it, it, it occurred to me that if you're under a certain age, that, that would mean absolutely nothing, nothing. to you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk about what Sears and Roebuck and Montgomery yeah. Ward catalogs were. Yeah. So if, uh, if you lived in a rural area where you didn't have access to a mall or a lot of shopping centers, you were getting a catalog and you were mail ordering. And Montgomery Ward, Sears, J.C. they had everything. And they had, I mean, Sears even had prefabricated houses you could order out of their catalogs in, you know, the early 20th century. And so when you want to get a snapshot of what was going on in that year, a catalog is fantastic because you can find out fashion. You can find out um, what's the latest and greatest tool for dad, what toys were kids, you know, wanting to have that year, um, wallpaper, carpeting. I mean, you name it. The catalogs would have it, and it's a fantastic snapshot. And if you've got a series of them, I mean, you look, you can look at them over a decade and watch fashions change. It's mm-hmm. they're fantastic, and and prices too. I took a picture of yeah. some of those, and I and some of the newspaper ads that were in there, and you're you know you're seeing that um, you know the price of meat is a lot yep. less, or you see things that are. I, there was something that I looked at that it was nine cents. It was advertising nine cents. Yep. You you couldn't find anything for nine cents. No today. Yeah, there was a menu that was put in uh, from one of the restaurants, which I think... Cater Jets. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I uh, I happened to glance at it and the prices are just, you know, <laughs> it's, all, it, it's always a really good gauge of where you are in the century based on prices. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's always great to see those. Well, so you talk to me a little bit about somebody who's a curator. You spend all this time with historical artifacts and um, I guess what kind of when we open that time capsule and you start going through this, what what does that feel like for you? I mean, you have that. I mean, you must have you clearly are interested in this and clearly interested in in the history of things. But talk a little bit about like your feelings when you're going through some of this stuff. Well, so time capsules are, are really fascinating to me because for one, I mean, it's like a present from the past. I mean, who doesn't like to get presents? And it's always a surprise um, as much as the news reported on the time capsule in 1972, they were pretty vague, which I, I will try to be as well, because you want to have that little bit of a surprise of what's coming. And um, so we didn't know what to expect. But when you have a time capsule and you put in the amount of time and effort and organization to collect things, you're going to make sure they're special. You're mm-hmm. going to make sure that they're important 
that they represent your values, your thoughts, your beliefs, whatever it is in your culture that you deem to be important. And um, I, I think that's probably the most important thing. And, and then from a museum standpoint, there are artifacts that have been very lightly touched. Um, people don't usually toss in, you know, the, the, the magazine they got three months ago. It's going to be something that they got very recently. They probably lightly handled it. And it's going to be in pristine shape, which it makes it even that much more valuable because you you can see what it looked like in its prime. Most of the stuff that we get at the museum has been very well used. And I, I like to tell people there is never anything new in the museum. Mm-hmm. And, um, and even in a time capsule, it may be close to new, but it's still not new. But that's the beauty of it. Like I said, we got artifacts from the Centennial Committee that we didn't even know existed. Mm-hmm. And so that adds another dimension to something that was very, very important. And yet still you can't document 100% of everything. So there's that aspect. And then finally with the letters, you have these personal touches where people are, are telling their thoughts, their feelings, what they want to convey and to hear those direct stories. They're they're the most precious thing a museum can get. And what we tell people all the time when they when they come in, it's like we can find new objects, but what we can't replace are the family histories. We we want to know how somebody came here. Why did they come here? What kind of things did they deal with when they were here? And it's it's that firsthand account, um, whether it's from 1872 or 1972 to to have them talk to us about things that they were feeling, they were thinking, they experienced. You know, we could have this romanticized version of uh, seeing photographs of, of of a restaurant, and go man, I bet that was the best place to eat. And then you get a letter from the past going, "Don't ever eat there." <laughs> so it's it's one of those things where you, just having those stories really allows you to connect more fully. But and the stories really, uh, like you said, it kind of connects us to the yeah. people who live there. There's no there's no bias. There's no there's no lost in translation. You're hearing it directly from them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's not historians telling the story that they want right. to tell. I always joke about Hutchinson that I, the research I've done, particularly with the State Fair, if you go back to the, the State Fair coming to Hutchinson, everybody who was anybody, if you read the history, mm-hmm. was critically involved in bringing the fair here. And yeah. that's the history that's told. Yeah. Um, and we have no idea to know whether that was or wasn't right or if some people are embellishing their own right, story. Right, or there was people that did not get along, like they hated each other but they were working towards a common goal. I mean, yeah. there's always personality conflicts or people that just, they, they came to be best lifelong friends out of, out of a situation. So that stuff doesn't get recorded. But, but in those letters, yeah, you get the real be. feelings about yeah. things, right? Yeah, it's fantastic. Oh, that's fascinating. Yep. And so when we get those letters, uh, when we contact those people, they were going to, obviously we did not read them except to find out who they were addressed to. Um, but we're going to encourage them, read it, and then decide whether or not it's something that if they want to keep it and make it personal, it's theirs because it's addressed to them. Sure. But we would highly encourage them to allow us to have the originals or scan them just to keep that record so that in 100 years, people will still have that story. So, yeah, that's and that's and hopefully people will allow that because oh, that's yeah. an important yeah. part of that. Yeah. Um, well, and, and that that kind of makes me think about ultimately we're going to try to create an exhibit around Mm -hmm. these items. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So once everything gets stabilized, um, I think, um, 
within the last five years or so, uh, some humidity crept in there and a, a little bit of moisture damage happened. And so we're letting everything kind of dry out. And it's actually progressing quite nicely. Nothing is beyond repair. Um, and then we'll have a small exhibit that kind of shows some of the, the highlights, some of the, the objects, both two-dimensional and three-dimensional. And we'll get that on display so that people can see firsthand um, what, what made it through, through the last five decades. Um, and I'm excited to put that together. Yeah, that'll be great. Now, we talked about, I mean, that's going to be exciting. Mm-hmm. We talked about that a little bit. To, it, we did, I mean, there was a little moisture in there, but yeah. we, we considering that it was buried 50 years ago yeah. and underground, we came out pretty well on really this, well. right? Really well, yeah. Um, I, when I was reading the Hutch News article yesterday, um, like most uh, internet searches, you get linked to other uh, relevant news stories. And I, I heard McPherson's time capsule was severely damaged with water. So um, in that respect, we're, we're very lucky, especially being as close to Cow Creek as City Hall is. I mean, if it had flooded once, we probably would have had some serious issues, but we came out of it well. And the new one is even better built. So so the old one was a kind of like a steel... It was uh, a steel vault, yeah. yeah, provided by Johnson & Sons, who were the, the leading undertakers of the time. I guess it, it, in 1972, they would have been a funeral home. But, okay. Uh, yeah. So they, they kind of crafted that for us. Yeah, and that's what it looks it like. Okay. Yeah. And then the one that we put in with the new stuff, uh, you said it's a combination of PVC and fiberglass yep. and probably it's, has an O-ring on the seal. It's got an O-ring, um, marine-grade caulking around the seal. Um, it's about uh, about 18 inches in diameter, cylinder-shaped, about four feet tall. And uh, so it will hold, if I had to guess, probably about three times as much information as what came out of the one in in 1972. So we were able to pack it with a lot more items okay. than what went into the the previous one. Now, there there was one item in the 1972 time capsule that I saw at the museum, and we had a brief conversation about it, and I, I want to bring that up. Mm-hmm. It was a, a KWBW radio mm-hmm. put, put in the time capsule, a reel-to-reel audio tape, uh, that you said is labeled as an apology. As an apology, in quotes, yeah. yeah. We but don't know. It, but it's a medium that is not so uncommon now. Yeah. Uh, there's some question about the amount of work it's going to take to find the player that we can actually uh, play yeah, this on, just right? just a standard reel-to-reel. And there are companies out there that still specialize in that. Um, locally, it might be a little bit more difficult, um, but in the big scheme of things, it shouldn't be too difficult, but it's still an added step. Um they went with the best technology of their time, and even now you're 50 years out of date, and that's the same situation that they're going to be in in 2072. Yeah, because we 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 could say, oh, we put a thumb drive in or a flash drive, um, and they'll just plug it, but we don't know what the technology is going to be right. 50 years from now. Flash drives may be such an obsolete thing; they may have to hunt, do the same thing and hunt around and find sure. an old computer that they can still fire up and plug a USB into yep. and say, can we pull this in? And then hopefully the operating system will recognize the old files <laughs> yeah. and everything else like yeah, that. Yeah, it's probably a lot more complicated today with um, you know computers and software than it was uh, at a time where it was more mechanical. Um, and because you can always repair something mechanical, whereas a computer, you got to reprogram it. Yeah. And that can take a lot more, a lot more work, circuitry, and all that kind of fun stuff. But uh, um, I, I will... I will admit to one thing that's in the time capsule. There is a record in the time capsule um, that was donated. I won't say what the record was. I'll leave that to the future. Um, But what I found fascinating was that she had the forethought to include directions on how to build a record player. 
Oh, wow. So, yeah, I can't include directions on how to build a USB drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that that I thought was uh, was quite clever, uh, quite innovative, and uh, I, I wish I could be here in 2072 to, to watch them open it. I know. It'd be fascinating, yeah. wouldn't it? Yep. Well, and I don't, we talked a little bit about not wanting to kind of spoil the surprise and yep. keeping a little bit of vagueness about what's in there. Um, but we can talk a little bit generally yep. about what sort of things were put in the new time capsule yep. uh, that people will get to experience 50 years from now. Right. So there were not as many letters to the future um, as we got out of this one. Um, that that was the, the biggest thing. To me, it was a slight disappointment, but then I started to think about it, you know, and I mentioned it at the ceremony that in today's day and age where Google and your cell phone is, you know, at a, you know, right there in your hand, it's easy to access memories mm -hmm. and communicate with people. And you could go on a road trip for the weekend and take 300 photographs. And so I think people today are a little bit more, I think they're more comfortable with the level of communication and, and the, the preservation that they think will, will last 50 years. So we didn't get as many letters in that respect. Um, but we got a lot of um, photographs of the physicalness of the city, buildings, um, uh, landmarks, the layout of the city, um, because that's going to change. Whether we like it or not, buildings are going to come and go. Um, and there's been many times where I'm researching something and go, man, I wish I had a section of Main Street from this time period. Well, I personally walked Main Street and photographed everything. So oh, wow. <laughs> it took me in an after took me an afternoon, but I thought it was well worth it because I would want that curator to not have to deal with that mess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Having a blank page of not knowing what's going on. So you're thinking of whoever is going to be your, yeah, your, and I labeled your position. It, I labeled it in a way that I, I, I wanted them to know I'm facing west. This is what time of day it is. So when you see shadows and this is what you're looking at. So I was very detailed on, on the descriptions that I put on these photographs because I know what it's like. Um, Somebody's going to be really thankful for you. 50 I years hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's photographs of citizens, um, some with their families, some doing activities. Um, let's see. Uh, there are uh, pop culture references, uh, especially with movies. Um, we have the state of affairs with um, the city government mm -hmm. and the things that they're working on. Uh, I won't. I, I wouldn't be able to remember all of it anyway, but uh, I know the mayor, uh, she worked with the council and she submitted a, a pretty lengthy letter. I didn't read all of it, but um, it was a very well-written um, overview of how Hutchinson is operating, struggles they may be coming uh, coming across. And um, it, it's, it's a really good snapshot because we didn't really get that in the 1972 one. And they were at the height of a lot of, you know, social turmoil too. Vietnam was going on, all that kind of fun stuff, Nixon and his resignation. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of times um, we have a sense of, especially today, politics tends to polarize people. And I think having a firsthand account, then you can kind of take out you know, the bias that you may hear from one source or another, or this person's reporting on something or somebody wrote a book about this, you're hearing it from the city council who mm -hmm. are working together to create this report. And I think that's really important to get that kind of a snapshot where you're hearing it straight from one entity with one voice telling you how something is. And uh, 
I was very thankful that they were able to, to put that in there. Um, and they did the same. I, I mean, that was one thing that was read yesterday was the letter from the city government yeah. in 1972. And the same sort of thing. The entire city council signed yep. a letter talking about what was happening in the city and what their hope was for the future. Yeah. So then that in itself and then doing that again in 22 kind of creates that continuity yeah. between each of these 50 years. And when you mention that, that artifact, because I've seen everything that's come out of the 1972 capsule, that letter to me was the most important one because not only did it show you how the city council came together for one thing, um, it showed that they all had similar hopes, similar similar drives, similar desires. They, they wanted Hutchinson to continue to grow. They wanted everyone to be working together towards a common goal. And then, you know, secondary was to see the signatures of Dallas Crable, who was the first African-American to sit mm-hmm. on the city council. Jim Martinez, who became the first Hispanic mayor. Um, and they had no idea where they would be placed in Hutchinson history yeah. at that point. So I was very excited to see those signatures in there. Um, but, yeah, that it was it was a really I, I was very glad that we were able to find that in the time capsule pretty quickly and allow the mayor to read it. Yeah, that was a that was, was great. a great, great experience yeah. there. Now, and one thing, and I, I hope you'll be OK with me asking about this. We talked a little bit earlier. You put a letter in. The I time did. Capsule, yeah. And and it, will you be willing to talk about kind of your experience with that? Because it kind of leads into the next section I want to talk about, about kind of the significance of time capsules and why we do them. Yeah. But. Uh, you had shared a little bit with me about th- that was an emotional experience for you. Yeah, uh, it, it was um, because, you know, I'm I'm 45 and, and the odds of me being here are slim. And my kids, you know, I've got one that's 12 and another one that just turned 10. So they most likely will be here, but they will still be older than me. And, you know, as a parent, it's surreal to think of your kids older than you and have already lived a bulk of their life. And just thinking about it, it just kind of it kind of gives you a pause on your own mortality. And um, so you have that mortality aspect, but then you also have that communication aspect where, you know, how kids are, they don't always listen to their parents mm-hmm. and especially when they're kids, but as they get older, they tend to be a little bit more receptive. And, you know, I would like to think that I have imparted them with wisdom, but you never know. <laughs> yeah. And so that's one of the things that you try to communicate to in that letter. And now I actually did write that in there that, um, uh, that I hoped everything that I wrote in that letter was something they already knew about me and that they they were happy with their lives. They had um, maintained strong ties with their with their siblings and, you know, any any other members of their family. And I think that's I think that's what everyone hopes for their family is that they do their best, live their best life and um, and just have no regrets. And, you know, it's it's just it's one of those primal things where you just want to be there forever, but you can't. And so at some point you just have to let them go. And there's, it seems to me there's something, and this is what I thought yesterday thinking I, we talked about that too. Like I thought about my, my kids and my grandkids, my, my granddaughter, uh, two of them, one's seven and one's three will be 57 and 53 when the sub, so the same sort of situation they'll, they'll be, they will, uh, past likely the halfway mark of their life by then. And they'll be older than me. Yeah than I am now close to retirement age. Yeah. Even. Yeah. When, when they go, when this is opened and, and I've got a letter in there too. And so it's, it's, it is kind of a, a sobering thought to yeah. think about, you know, the, these people that I love, I'll be gone. They're going to be older than I am now. Mm-hmm. And this captured moment of my life is going to be 
we, you know, right. uh, exhumed it and was, brought to the surface. Exactly. And because of that, you have one chance, one opportunity to talk to them. And it's what do you say? Yeah. What is the most important thing? And you don't have a chance to, th- to go, man, I should have mentioned that too. You don't get that opportunity again. So it really makes you think about what's important to you. And I think not just, you know, and that goes with the letters, but then that translates to the objects that people submit. So it really makes you take inventory of, of yourself. And uh, I, I found it mortifying, but at the same time gratifying yeah. to be able to write something like that. So does that kind of explain why we do time capsules? I mean, this is something that it, it, almost every community does, but is, is that kind of feeling and that sense uh, why we do this? Uh, and yeah. what is our, just as a, I mean, you're, you work in the history field, but just for the rest of us, what is so fascinating about this every 50 or 100 years? You said there's two other time capsules. Yeah, in two town, others. Yeah. Uh, one at the courthouse yep. and one at Memorial Hall. Yep. Um, that'll be open at some other time. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but what is it about our culture that makes us uh, appreciate this so much or, or, or has created this thing where we do this? Well, I'm sure there have been research studies done on why we do time capsules. And I, I can just speak from, from my own experience, you know, personally and professionally that I think, I think humans like to be remembered. Um, I think that's why we have cemeteries and that's why we have memorials and we want to make our mark. We want to be, we were here type of moment. Um, and even for a moment, when you open that time capsule, everyone that submitted something is remembered and you want that connection to, you know, not just my kids, but also my kids will probably have kids. And so now I will be able to connect with people that I don't even know exist. Mm -hmm. And I think humans like, I think they need that connection, whether it's tangible or not. And it's um, that, that drive to, to, to continue to communicate and to show what you think is important and, um, and let people know what you value as another person. And to find the same kind of level, you know, we're, we're all the same was at, at, at the most basic level. We're all the same. We all have the same needs, desires, hopes, dreams. And I think, I think it's important as a person for me that even if I may be gone, you're still living the way that I would want to be living at the same time. I don't know if that makes sense. It you, does. Okay. Yeah. It, and then... I was thinking about this too. Um, oh, I, I like what, what I like what you said that it, it, in some ways it doesn't matter what time. I mean, it could be fifty years ago, it could be a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. It, in fifty years, it'll be two hundred years ago. But the 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 basic idea of humanity's need and, and desire to to matter, to be remembered, mm-hmm. uh, and to share that and connect with other people, and it it crosses these timelines, right? It's right. Not, it doesn't matter geographically where you are and it doesn't matter uh, linear on time where you are you still want those same things right. whether you were from 100 150 years ago or or 50 years from now yeah so when uh, you told me you wanted to talk to me about time capsules i had the regular curiosity of what's the oldest time capsule and and i honestly didn't know so i i did a quick research on it and found that the oldest one um 
in the United States was one that was placed by Paul Revere and Sam Adams in a statute that nobody even knew about. And it was discovered in 1855, and then they put it back, and then it was rediscovered later. But I found it really fascinating that these two guys probably hadn't, they may have had a little bit of inkling that they were important in American history, but as time progressed, they became more legendary, more mythologized, you know, and, and their names became household. And what I found most fascinating was that Paul Revere crafted a silver tray or silver plaque that was included, but it was the words that he wrote on it that I thought were more important because he's communicating to us his own thoughts and desires about the future, and it's less about the object. And so um, I think these guys kind of understood that too. It's like we want to communicate, but here's some stuff that we thought you would like as well. So um, I'm probably going off on a tangent. No, I love this though, but do you remember what was written on the tray? I don't. I don't remember off the top of my head, um, but it was it was a lot of you know what we all would write. Um, it was the, just an overall theme of wanting to to have that continuity, to have that that perseverance that things are still going well. Um, and I, I read about a couple of other ones, and in all of them, they they have objects, um, but they also have messages mm-hmm. and. Um, for me, as as an historian, my personal preference is to have the messages. I uh, I I gravitate towards what are you telling me, because somebody can bring me, you know, like this microphone. It's like here's a microphone. Oh, great, a microphone. Oh, that's fantastic. It's like any other microphone. But when you tell somebody about that object, it really brings it to life. So if somebody says, "Here's a silver plaque," well, that's fantastic. I've seen 50 of these. Mm-hmm. Well, this one's written by Paul Revere, and he wrote this message to us on it that changes the entire dynamic of the object. And I think that's what messages really do personally for me um, and even in the museum world. I, without that story, it's just another object. And, and that's I, I like that, that the, the stuff is stuff, mm-hmm. but the, the stuff that has a message, the stuff that is... Uh, uh, words from the past that still have relevancy yeah. and meaning today or even provide some context to the past. Yeah. Uh, that's that's really where it's at, yeah, right? It's like, why did you have a microphone that yeah. day? You know, it's like it, it was to, you know, convey messages and to do, you know, to, to record things. And with without knowing what goes into an item, um, you don't really know. And I, I remember, I remember uh, as an undergraduate, uh, I had a professor um, he, he gave us an example once and he said, he held up a hammer and he said, what is this? And we all said, well, it's a hammer. He goes, so if I take this into the middle of nowhere into another culture and showed this to them, would they know what it is if I didn't tell them? And of course we probably said, no, we wouldn't. How would they know what the hammer looks like? Cause even in our own culture, we have 50 different kinds of hammers. Mm-hmm. So just because you you know what that object is doesn't mean somebody else recognizes it for what it is. So it's it's always good to have somebody tell you straight from the you know straight from the person who used it. This is why I had it. This is what I used it for. You know, this is the finger I broke when I tried to fix it. You know, uh-huh. it things like that. It really brings it to life. And that's why those letters are so telling. Yeah. Right. That and and even something like the the menu. Right. Yeah. It's, it, it's not. Um, it's not like a picture of food. It's uh, this is what 
This is what people ate at the time. Right. This is what they paid for it. Yep. Um, this is what was on the menu. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and that brings to another point, you know, let's talk about the Wiley building. It's right in the middle of downtown Hutchinson. It's been there for 110 years. And in 110 years in the museum, I think we have 10 photographs of the inside of it and none of them with people. Really? Yeah. Nobody ever thinks to take a photograph of them shopping. I mean, when you go to Walmart and Target, how often do you go there? So to be able, and that's the same with a restaurant. You can see a photograph of a restaurant, but what did they serve there? What Uh were their specials? What did they like to serve on Friday nights? How much did they charge? What was their specialty? So just having that menu just opens the entire story of that restaurant. So it it really, when you, and and we had photographs from the barbershop. And he included photographs of what the popular haircut was of that time. And people sitting in the and chair. sitting with in the, the chair getting a haircut. Yeah. And they they look very similar to today, but there are still differences. And nobody ever thinks to take photographs or document that stuff because it's just part of normal life. So having these little snapshots where somebody said, you know, I think this is really important to my restaurant. Here's a menu. That's fantastic. It really is. You might think it's innocuous and boring, but... It really adds a lot of dimension. So when you, I mean, outside of time, the time capsule, but when you're going through, a family comes in and brings things to you and they have a stack of photos and, and stories or letters or whatever, um, you're probably looking at the backgrounds of a lot of these photos. Oh, right? we absolutely flip them over first. That's the first thing we do. And um, we we tell people, you're not leaving until we know who all these people are. And, uh-huh. and so when they are telling us names, we, we always ask, how are they related to you? And if they say, well, it's my grandmother, fine. Is it your mother's mother or your father's mother? We, all, we, we try to shy away from grandmother and things of that nature because everybody's got four grandparents. Uh-huh. Everybody's got multiple siblings. Sometimes they have half siblings. So we always try to make it as specific as we can because once that person drops off the night and, and walks out the door, the odds of us ever seeing them again are remote. And it it's heartbreaking to walk into an antique store and you pass a shelf that's filled with photographs for sale and there is no information. And it the, the worst part is seeing baby photographs for mm-hmm. me personally, because this was a baby that was loved and had a life. And you have no idea who this person is because nobody thought to write on the back. And, when, and the same in our digital age. You go on vacation, you take 800 photos, and you don't label any of them when you get home. You, maybe you don't even offload them onto your computer. And then you lose your phone or you get a computer crash and all of it's gone. So I think a lot of times we take for granted how we live our lives. And when you take a minute to remember when you're gone, these things don't have the same meaning. Mm-hmm. And if you want to convey that meaning, you have to record that meaning yourself. And so that's why it's very important for us, especially with photographs, um, to get those meanings, to find out you've got four kids in a line. Okay, why do you have four kids in a line? It could be a birthday. It mm-hmm. could be, um, you know, 10 minutes later, Johnny broke his leg and, you know, he got the week off of school and we had a big party or something. You know, it's it, it, there's always a story behind a photograph. And, you know, today you can take 800, but then you take one and, you know, there's Johnny where they're blinking or this tongue stuck out or something. <laughs> so, you know, it's it to for, for us in the museum world, we we definitely have to have that that meaning to the objects and the photographs. And all that provides context yep. for 
what was going on at the time and yeah. what the reality was at the time and and also allows people to connect to later generations right, right? yeah so it, there's um there's a photograph that we have in in the museum and um we have a, a small exhibit on him and his name is maurice wickendall and he was a uh, uh, Blue Angels. He was a founding member of the Blue Angels. And there's a photograph that we have of him as he's probably 10 or 11. And it's wintertime, but he's wearing the old school aviator goggles on his head. And if you just saw him as a kid, he's like, oh, he's wearing a winter hat with aviator goggles. And then that photograph shows that he loved flying from a very early age and he made it his lifelong passion. So something as simple as what was somebody wearing could, could tell an entire story. So we, re, especially me, I really look at the details and the backgrounds of photos to see what's going on. And in that situation, like you said, if that, if that's, if you don't know who that is and there's not something to say, this is who this is. And you can't connect that with right. what he later did and what he later became, uh, you would, you just think it's a kid that you lose the meaning of it. Yeah. yeah. And if it, and if it wasn't labeled, then it's just some other kid. You wouldn't even know if he was from Hutchinson. And that happens a lot. And and in that case, um, we have a photograph of him working in a restaurant, but he didn't label the back of the restaurant. So we have no idea where he worked as a teenager. But he worked at some greasy spoon. Here in Hutch. Here in Hutch, but we don't know where. And, you know, it's not a tragedy, but it just kind of takes away a little bit of that because he also looks like he was a delivery driver for that restaurant. But we wouldn't know. Because maybe that restaurant didn't offer delivery service and he's just a, you know, a car hop. But it's just all the little details that go in where it just takes five seconds to label the photograph or change a file name in your computer and make a backup. Well, in, in today's era, what what could people do that will kind of, I mean, what recommendations would you have as a historian? I mean, you talk a little bit um, about labeling the photo or yeah. changing the file name. But what would you recommend people do if they if they want to be conscious of this? And they want to be mindful of trying to preserve some of these things for the future. Well, from my personal experience, what I try to do, um, I, I, for one, try to keep my digital files organized. And it could be kind of anal, but it's just being in this profession, you know what's important. And I want it to be easy for somebody in the future. But I also like to take advantage of websites that make scrapbooks where mm-hmm. you, all you have to do is upload your photos. You can add text to them. Shutterfly, Walgreens will even do them. Um, there's there's a bunch of websites that mix book, and you can create that 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 book because you know if you lose your computer, you lose your phone, you still have that documentation. Um, so that's that's one way. And what I've also done, and I started doing with old photographs, um, I started scanning them. And just in my spare time, you know, I do you know a dozen until I get sick of it, mm-hmm. and then I walk away. But um, if my house started to catch on fire, I knew I know exactly where that hard drive is. I know that it's right where I can grab it and I'm out the door. So my entire house could burn down, but I still have my photographs. So, um, Which is always the thing people are most sad about if their yeah, house burns down. Exactly. It's always they lost their photos. They lost their photos. And mine is, I, I, oddly enough, I have another one sitting on my desk. So I have, I have it in two different locations. So it may be, like I said, a little excessive, but... It, from my perspective, photographs, just especially in our our age, you know, the generation that's coming along now, Generation Z, I mean, how often can you say that you videotaped your child's first step? I can mm-hmm. because I had my cell phone on me right then 
when I could tell she was getting ready to walk across the room. Previous generations can't do that. I know, you, you know, the, the Gen Xers and the millennials, you'll be very lucky to, to have an entire life documented digitally. And um, I, I think, I, I hope Gen Z doesn't, you know, you know, take that for granted. But, you know, growing up as a Gen Xer, you know, you get a couple of photos on your birthday, a couple of photos at Christmas, and sorry about the rest of the year. If you're a first kid, the baby book was filled out. That's and if you're exactly a second right. kid, it's not. It's empty. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the way it was with my brother and I. And so I, I, I guess I kind of appreciate that. And I, I want my kids to know, you know, that these were the things that I thought were important in their life. And um, I would like to kind of give them a subliminal message that they should do that for their own lives when they're not under my roof and, you know, they've gone on to live their own lives that they take a moment to reflect on what they find important in their own lives and to make note of it and to, and to just savor it any which way they can, even if it's in a simple photograph. I mean, cause you know, you're out with your friends, you take 15 selfies and then one of them's probably good, but you keep all 15 mm -hmm. instead of, you know, I'm going to weed out the other 14 that were, or nonsense. So you always have to kind of rein yourself in on the amount and the volume. Um, and I, I think that probably turns a lot of people off when they try to document digi digital stuff today because you take so many. Um, I got in the habit of if I take 10 photos, uh, I'll go back and I'll, I'll weed out at least half of them. Um, mainly because I don't want to run out of hard drive space on my phone. But yeah. <laughs> in the future, you know, it makes it a lot easier to sort through. Yeah, so, that makes sense because you're not... You, you don't you, overwhelm yourself. Yeah, because you can. I remember when I first switched from film, film to digital and how easy it was if you had a big enough memory card yeah. to just take thousands of photos. Yeah. Or uh, if you have a wife like mine who likes to photograph her food and post it on social media. <laughs> so when you're doing backups of her photos, you're like, you took a picture of a steak. That's great. <laughs> well, well, and I guess if, if, if you're eating with her, you're probably saying, well, don't just take a picture of the steak. Yeah. Take a picture of the <laughs> sign of the restaurant, yeah, the uniform right. that the that's waitress right. is wearing yeah. or the waiter is wearing. That's and, right. <laughs> yeah, making sure that all of that's brought exactly. into Exactly. Yeah. Well, one other thing I wanted to ask you about is that we are celebrating Hutch's 150th anniversary, and there's a, a mile of block parties, yep. and there's a big celebration, and all of that is happening Thursday the 18th downtown. Mm -hmm. uh, can you give me just kind of a brief overview of what people can expect there? Yeah, so it's um, so it's on a third Thursday, um, and the it's come to be expected that Main Street's going to be closed down on the third Thursday every every month. Um, the police are there ready to block off traffic and all that kind of stuff. And it should be blocked off, I believe, from Avenue B all the way up to at least 6th or 7th Street. It may go all the way up to the library. Um, but on every block, you're going to find a different theme, um, a different set of businesses. Um, the Historical Society will be on the 500 block uh, by the by the landmark. And we'll be focused on a lot of history. Um, uh, some of the outside towns will also be joining us on that block. I believe Pretty Prairie. Um, I think Haven are, is also going to be there. And we'll have games. And um, we'll be selling um, a book that I, I created that uh, highlights the past um, it was the 75th anniversary, so we'll be selling that. It's photographs that I, I pulled out of the archive. Um, and it, it's just going to be 
a celebration of all the businesses that are still here, the ones that have come and gone. And, uh, you know, w- whether you lived 150 years ago or not, everyone is still contributing today. And so we're all important on making Hutchinson continue to grow towards the bicentennial. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. I, I think it's going to be a good event. I think I think it will be. It's a, it's. Uh, I think the block party is all up and down, mm-hmm. up and down the street. So there'll be a lot to do. And you said something there that just uh, in, in this whole conversation, which has been thanks for coming in today, because that was incredibly uh, fascinating conversation. But it just is a reminder that um, it really is like every one of us contributes and our stories and our experiences. Uh, that's what makes a community. That's mm-hmm. what uh, that's what creates history. Everything yep. that we do, yep. every experience we have, every interaction we have, um, if it's recorded and if it's marked, that that is part of what makes the history, yeah. right? Um, and I think that's uh, easy to lose or e- easy to lose sight of. But um, and when you're doing the business of life and and you know living day to day, you kind of can forget. Don't that. put it off until tomorrow. Take care of it today. Yeah, because you never know, and it's. It's important. And a lot of people, I think, um, when we try to talk to people and interview people at the museum, they they tend to shy away from it because they always say, I'm nobody special. You are special to someone and yeah. you are special in this community and you have contributed whether you know it or not. So uh, it's always about, unfortunately, trying to convince other people that they're special. Yeah. And unfortunately, you, you do have to do that. And Hopefully this event will show people that we're all here. We're all just living our lives together. I mean, I can't imagine being anywhere else right now. So yeah. I'm, I'm hoping a lot of people feel, feel the same way. So I hope so, too. Well, thanks for coming on today. Yeah. Thanks for talking with me about this. And thanks for uh, caring about this history and, and taking care of it for us. Reno County history, I, I've lived a lot of places. And... I've, I've looked at a lot of Kansas history, and I will say that Reno County has probably the un- most unique, most diverse, and I think a lot of communities should be envious of the history that we've managed to collect. And um, I'm very proud of the work that we, we continue to do, and I enjoy sharing it with anybody who's willing to listen. So I'm well, glad to be here. I'm glad you're here, and I, I, hope, uh, I hope everybody feels that same way. I've found that, too. We, we do have... And sometimes, in some ways, bizarre, and some yeah. ways, uh, so interesting. Yep. We've had some incredible characters uh, that have lived here and moved away and, mm-hmm. and done some remarkable things. And we've had people that have stayed here, uh, born here, and died here, and made their mark yeah. here in whatever we'll way. We'll have to have a just... discussion about that sometime. Yeah, because there's lots of stories to talk about. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for having the conversation Absolutely. today, and I look forward yeah. to talking to you more. Yeah. Right, thank you. Thanks. I'd like to thank a few of the people who've helped make that podcast and Hutch possible. My son, Mitchell Probst, wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast and Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast and Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. 
You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Assault City Sound Production.